You're listening to Pastor Greg Voorhees, recorded at Shenandoah Valley Baptist Church on Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. For more information about SVBC, you can visit their website, svbcfamily.com, or find them on all things social at svbcfamily. Actually, the cello is actually my favorite instrument in the entire world. There's a trivial fact that nobody cares about, but I love it. My poor daughter, I went to uh, Friday, I'd gotten tickets to um, a classical Christmas, it was a string quartet at the Cortland Mansion in, in Hagerstown, and, and I get st- tickets to things like these, and, and Sue couldn't care less, I think she would rather have her teeth cleaned than go to some of these things I go to, so my poor daughter, I drag her to these things, but the uh, it, it was beautiful. I mean, it was just like a whole hour of just that. I, I, it was it was great. Today actually is the beginning of Advent. And, you know, the Advent we look at we, we we focus on different things over over the four weeks leading up to uh, Christmas. Obviously, when we celebrate, you know, the birth of Christ. Um, we've we've often seen things like Advent ca- or, or calendars. I used to love, it was an excuse for me to get candy when the kids were growing up. I'd get the little candy calendars, but, you know, each day of Advent, you know, you get a piece of candy. Well, I I look forward to it because I love the candy. The most absurd thing I've ever seen, I actually saw an Advent calendar that each each day was a shot of liquor. I'm like, it's like I can't quite wrap my head around that. You know, it's it's an Advent calendar. You know, you know. I guess it's I guess it's something that somebody was willing to buy. This this first uh, this first candle as uh, I light it. Um, hopefully this will work. There we go. It is known as the candle of hope, or some refer to it as the can the prophetic candle. Uh, the first, the first of the the Advent Sundays, you know, I'm not going to have some little thing that I read about this, but we are going to talk about it. the first candle, the, the prophetic candle, or the the hope candle. I like both of these names, and why is because a lot of the hope that we had as 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 the coming of of Christ was coming was through the words of the prophets. The prophets had 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 been talking about the coming of Messiah. The prophets have been talking about the signs of the Messiah, you know, the, you know, the fact that he would be born of a virgin, you know, where he would be born. You know, they, Isaiah talked a lot about, you know, attributes and names of, of, of Messiah. The, uh, so this, this first candle represents those words of hope that we receive through the prophets. And, and it, it's, it's worthy of talking about, I mean, because... As as the as the prophets were giving us these words, it was almost like Christ's calling card. It's one of the ways that we that we can say, without a doubt, that He is who He said He was, because He fit all of these things that the prophets had told us about. And we still we we still draw hope from the words of the prophets, and we still draw hope from from the the fact that Christ did come, just as they said that He would. Just as he said, they said he would. Christ has fulfilled every single one of these these prophecies 
about his, his coming, his incarnation. All the way up through the prophecies surrounding his death and resurrection. Christ is the perfect fulfillment of the prophets and the law. He's the perfect fulfillment of the teachings, the writings. He's the perfect fulfillment of, of, of the Word of God, in, in which we're actually going to talk about that a little bit today. Emmanuel. We're going to focus our entire morning focusing on this, this one particular name, Emmanuel. We see it in Isaiah 7.14. And of course, I left my clicker down there. I need to get one of those... Uh, you know the redneck wallets, the one that's got the chain? You, you know, and, and if you have that, I'm not cracking on you. It's just, I just call it the redneck wallet because all my friends who have, have those, they think they're rednecks. I love them, but they are. I need to get the redneck chain so that, you know, I could, when I go to look for my, my, my pointer, I can just grab my chain. Anyway, <laughs> Isaiah 7:14 says this, Therefore the, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You, you know, this was, and now I've got to remember to click it. This, this was a, to, to even think about this being a sign of Messiah. The fact that he wasn't born of a natural birth. He was born because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I, I mean, that, that, that should be a sign that there was something special about this birth. You know, this, this, this isn't even something that should have become by a surprise, even before we see Isaiah talking about this. You know, way back in Genesis, let's go to the very beginning. The, and when after the curse, and, and, and God's kind of laying out the, you know, the, the punishment for the devil, you know, the serpent, he says that he would that someone from the seed of the woman would crush his head. The seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. So this, this comes all the way back to Genesis. We already see a prediction of, of this virgin birth who would be Messiah. Because the Messiah is the only one who would have the ability to crush the head of the serpent. So we, we see that he, he came with a virgin, and we will call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? You know, it means God with us. Do we see evidence before the incarnation? What is the incarnation? The, the incarnation is the putting on of flesh. It's when, it's when Jesus stepped out of the heavens and put on flesh. You know, but do we see evidence of him being with us even before that? Here's this Genesis 3 again, Genesis 3.8. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So I'm not, going, I'm not focusing on the, the, the sin that had occurred while they were hiding. It was the fact that we see before the fall, though, that, that God walked with Adam and Eve to the point that when they heard him walking in the garden, they, re they knew who he was. That is a connection that, it, that just blows me away. They say, they say that a, a newborn child can, 
can, can tell who their mother is, that their mother's approaching by, by, by the vibrations of their footsteps as they approach them. Do you realize? And that's, a, that's an intimate relationship, so much that the infant knows the mother by the mother's approaching. The, Adam and Eve had that with God. God was with them. He was among them. He was walking in their presence to the point that literally they heard him walking. And, and they knew who he was. Do we see other evidence? Let's go forward a little bit. Joshua. Joshua 5, 13 through 15. This is this is this, right before Joshua and the, and, and the Hebrew people arrived at Jericho. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him. Yeah, I'll make sure I put that up there. With a drawn sword in his hand, Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua and the Hebrews, they're getting ready to approach Jericho, and, and they run across this guy with a drawn sword. And he identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. Who do we know back in Revelation, all the, the stuff that hasn't happened quite yet, who do we know is the commander of the army of the Lord? We see somebody else, we see somebody called that in Revelation. Who is that? That's Christ himself. Jesus is the commander of the army of the Lord. That, that, that's in Revelation. How, why else do we know that this is God being with us in that, this moment? He instructed Joshua to take his sandals off. The only other time we really see this is at the burning bush. God told Moses to take his sandals off because he was on holy ground. So when you were in the presence of deity, you were instructed to remove your sandals. So we see evidence here in Joshua where, where God was with us. He could, Joshua was able to see the commander of the Lord. Is there, is there another one? Let's just look at one more. I love the Old Testament. If you remember back before we did our exegetical look at Romans, I, I, I love the Old Testament. Then King Nebuchadnezzar stood to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown in the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like, get this, like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar recognized this fourth man appeared like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the, of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. So we see a fourth person in the fire who appears the son of the gods. Who had that? Who, that could only be one. Who was this? This was Jesus himself, the son of the God, the, the, someone who would appear as the son of the gods. You know, Daniel talked in other places about someone that had the appearance of, of man and the appearance of, of the son of gods. And, and that's why, what was Jesus' favorite name for himself? What did Jesus call himself more than anything else? The son of man. You know, so we see Jesus being with his people, even in the fire. 
So this, this idea of, of God being with us should not have been a surprise. So we should not be surprised by the fact that one of his names would be Emmanuel. Why is this name important? What? You, you know, when I look at how do we know, how do we know that God was with us? Up until Jesus came, how do we know that God was with us. It's from reading the accounts of the prophets. It's from reading the accounts of the witnesses. But it seemed like we had a tendency to forget so quickly that God was with us. But let's look at let's talk about the Bible for a second. You know, why would God coming in flesh? Why would it be so important? I'm going to offend somebody, and I don't mean to. Is the Bible infallible? Absolutely. There's, I mean, the Bible is dead on. There's nothing wrong in the Bible. Is it inherent? Inerrant, I'm sorry. Is the Bible inerrant? You, you know, if you look at that, you might think, well, does that mean that there's no errors? Isn't that what infallible is? No, that's not what inerrant is. It doesn't conflict itself. It, it, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't give you cross messages. It does send you a singular message about the lordship of, of, of Jesus. But is it perfect? Is this thing, this account that we read, is it perfect? I'm going to come back to that, but let's look at something Paul says. Here's this, here's this Romans that we just spent a lot of time on. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Do you, do you realize that here's, here's the problem with, and this is why, one of the reasons why Christ, it was so important that Jesus would come in the flesh to show that he was among us. Even though this is infallible and it's inerrant, is it perfect? Do you realize there is something that we love to call in seminary dual authorship of the Bible? What does that mean? It was given to us by God, but there was, there was a, a human element to it. He used a human, he used a human vessel to write this down. So does that mean that that leaves room? Does that mean that, that this is absolutely perfect? Words are limited in meaning and their ability to understand. Do you realize that's why we, we struggle over, you know, which, which is even the best translation? You, you know, this language is a funny thing. My, my favorite professor of all times was in my undergrad studies, a guy named Dr. Darbo, and I've told you the story. But he and, and the guy I was going to school with, his brother, Yaya, they were both from Africa, they, they were talking back and forth and, and making a long story much shorter. When I was asking, what language are you speaking? He said, seven languages. I, I said, so you're using seven languages interchangeably in a conversation? He said, oh, absolutely. Because he explained, of course, the, it just blows me away, the fact that they can speak seven languages interchangeably. But he said, no one language has the ability to really portray what I'm thinking or feeling or what I'm trying to get across. So when Yahya and I talk to each other, we draw from these various languages what we we're trying to, to say. So anytime that we add a human element to something, or, or we are bound by that language, it, it, I would argue that it's not perfect. It can be infallible. It can be an errant. But actions, and this is, this is where I'm coming with this. If we're depending just on reading about God being with us, there, there's room for us not getting the point. Because words are not perfect. 
They are limited by our understanding. They're limited by how we can relay what we're thinking and we're feeling. But actions really do speak louder than words. They just do. So one of the things that was so important for Jesus to come in the flesh is, is because it wasn't just words any longer. It wasn't just an account of things that happened long ago. He put flesh in the game. He, 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 he gave us an example that was so much greater than the, than the great stories of the things that he can be done. And here's some of the other issues. Here's some of the other issues with the languages. Words can be manipulated by someone who wants you to miss the real meaning or try to bend you in a particular direction. Doesn't Satan do that all the time? That is how Satan can use even this. Even Satan uses an infallible, inerrant word and will bend it and twist it to try to make you think things that aren't real or to try to, to make you believe things that aren't true. Even Satan could take this infallible, inerrant word and look at some of the things that happened in the Old Testament and try to convince you that God is a hard God. He can try to he could try to convince you that he is apathetic, uncaring toward his people. Because look at what he let happen. You know, he could, Satan can bend and twist this thing to completely help us miss the point. But when you put flesh in the game, when, when you come physically in the flesh, you, you can't bend or twist your motivation. So when you put those words with action, it, it, it reveals motive and intent. When Jesus came in the flesh, when Jesus came in the flesh, it no longer started being the stories of old. When Jesus came in the flesh and he showed us, I am with you, God is with you, it no longer stopped being a book about history. and It, start, it became a book about life. It became a book about your future. It became a book about your eternity. That is why this name, Emmanuel, God with us, it was so important because he wasn't just saying, I'm with you, and he wasn't just showing the times where he's been with the Hebrews. He's saying, I am with you. I have come for you. I have come to rescue you. What's some, we're going to look at three very quick things. Other reasons why this incarnation, this, this, this I am with you is so important. Jesus revealed he is with us by coming one of us and enduring their pain. Here's that, here's that chapter. That chapter I try to go to every chance I get. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. When Jesus came in the flesh, and here's something that's even, even, I don't know, did Jesus really need to come here in the flesh to understand your pain? No, I would say he would not. Why? Because he created you. He made you. The things that you feel, the things that you think, you were designed. You are, you are the product of an infinitely intelligent mind. You are a design. You are not an accident. 
So Jesus didn't need to come here to understand your pain. Because, in fact, God understands our pain. He feels pain. Do you realize that God feels pain every time a lost person dies? God knows pain. But why is it so important that he he would come and, and, and be able to suffer the way we've suffered and to do the things that we do? Because he is demonstrating to us one more way, just one more way that I am in this with you. There may be people who refuse to accept that God can understand them without him being here. You know, I've, I've talked a lot with veterans who've been in, 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 in combat, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's one of the things that I focused on most in my, my, my school, my, my, my time of, of, of counseling. But I will tell you, many veterans don't want to talk to another person who's not served themselves. In fact, some of them don't even want to talk to people unless they've been in the same war or in the same place. I've seen this with, with, with addicts, people struggling with addiction. They, they, that's why we have peer-to-peer counselors, because they, they, they appreciate so much more someone helping them who has been where they are and done what they've done, been exposed to the things they've been exposed to. So God didn't need to come here. Jesus didn't need to come here to understand you. But he wanted to drive home to you how much he does get you. Jesus knows what it's like to feel hunger. Jesus knows what it's like to feel pain. Jesus knows what it's like to to fall and bleed. He knows all of these things. And, And even though he could have understood them before, he wanted to prove to you, I am with you. We are in this together. I may be the firstborn of creation, and I may be, I may be the, you know, the first to, to rise again, to never fall. But I am in this with you. I have borne flesh like you have. I've been tempted in all the same ways that you've been tempted. And yet I have overcome the world. Jesus was sending very clear messages about who he is and his intent for you. And how much that you mean to him by this incarnation to say that I am with you. Again, I've talked about, I don't, I can't wrap my head around being willing to step out of heaven to come here. This is a beautiful place. A lot of cool stuff happens here, but there's also a lot of pain here. A lot of pain here. Why would you leave heaven unless you were that much engaged with saving your people to show them I'm with you, I feel you, I understand you, I've walked in your shoes. That's what I call going the extra mile. The incarnation itself was going the extra mile to say, I am with you. He didn't have to do even that. Jesus came You might help me out, David. Maybe. Oh, there we go. Oh, now we both worked. Jesus came to be with us because it was the only way to demonstrate the depth of his love. He could tell you, and again, this comes back to this thing with words. 
He could tell you in a language that you understand, I love you. I love you to the moon and back. I love you a bushel on a peck and a hug around the neck. That's what my mom always used to say. I still don't know what it means, but it, it, I take this, it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> a bushel on a peck and a hug around the neck. He could tell you how much he loves you. But he came to show you that I'm with you. And he wanted to demonstrate it in a way that no other way can. Greater love has no one than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. That's really up in the game, folks. Jesus had to come to be with us. To die for us. To show us that there is no greater love than what I'm going to do for you. No greater love. And here's, here's the thing that even drives this home for me even more. You know, I have gone into really dangerous situations where, yes, I could have been killed. People in the military do it all the time. But I can honestly say in every one of these situations, and even the ones I've gone back and thought, oh, God had to been with me because I don't know how I got out of that one. I went into it with the expectation of coming back out. I went into it with the understanding that, yeah, I might be killed, but I think I'm going home. Jesus came and put on flesh knowing that he was going to a cross. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He came here to die for you knowing he was going to die for you. Jesus planted the tree. That became a cross that he hung on. Jesus made the metal. The Romans may have beat it and formed it into a spike, but Jesus made the metal that would pierce his hands and his feet. Jesus made the thorns that would pierce his brow. He came here knowing this was his fate. He came here knowing that this is why he was here. But he still came. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. I am with you and I'm going to demonstrate to you how much I really do love you. Now that's something. That's something that he could have told you, I'm willing to die for you. But it didn't even really mean that much until he actually did. How many times has somebody told you, I'm willing to die for you? I can assure you, a lot of times when people say that, it's bull. They might be having an emotional response, and they might even think it when they say it to you. But when they're put into the right circumstance, if there are people who will willingly lay down their life for you, I'm, please don't say that person doesn't exist. But it is so often we get lip service from people. Oh, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to climb the highest mountain and swim the deepest ocean. I'm willing to die for you. People say that stuff. But Jesus did more than just say it. He did it. I am with you. I am with you. 
Jesus came to be with us because we were in a desperate need of a rescue from a problem so big that only he could save us. You know, I've alluded back to the fall of man a few times, just in this sermon, back in Genesis. He gave us one simple rule, we, we dropped the ball. That created a problem that was too big for us to fix. Because of the actions of Adam, and I know as a guy, I like to try to blame Eve, but that's not what the Bible says. Because of the actions of Adam, sin came into the world. Death came into the world. He handed over the deed of, of, of this world, handed it over to the devil. That's why he has so much say in this place. God gave dominion to Adam, and Adam, here you go, I'll listen to you instead. So when you want to blame somebody for why somebody died or why somebody's experiencing pain, you don't blame God because it wasn't his plan. But it created a huge problem. It created a separation between God and man. God was no longer walking in the garden with man to the point that when God was making his footsteps, that man knew who it was. God was no longer having these conversations where, where he had Adam and he brought all of the animals to him and said, hey, you name them, buddy. These conversations were no longer happening because that, that, that relationship with God had been broken. We created a problem that was too big for us to fix. We gave away a sinless nature because you realize we, Adam had one. Adam and Eve, they had a sinless nature. So if you ever try to say, well, Jesus, he, he, might not have, he may have made it without sin, but he had a sinless nature, so it was easier. Well, apparently it wasn't because Adam and Eve dropped the ball and they had a sinless nature. But now all of a sudden, because of this, this sin, because of what we've done, this problem that has gotten so big, now we had this sin nature that we couldn't wrangle with. It, we, we, it was bigger than we are. I can promise you that you can try to, without God, not sin, and you're not going to last a day. Because you can't do it without Him. You can't be righteous without His righteousness. You can't be new without his breath being blown into you. you. You can't do it. You had a problem that was too big and you couldn't solve it yourself. You were desperately heading through a life of loneliness into an eternity in hell before Jesus. And what's this saying to Paul? We talked about with Paul, Romans, Romans 8. He even gave us the rules where we could become, be righteous if we could follow these rules. But why, does, why was that not good enough? Because humans weaken everything. Once we started getting that sinful nature and we started having to deal with flesh, we have weakened everything. So not even the perfect law had the ability to save you because humans weaken it. So not even the law could get us to heaven. Not even the law. Not even the rules that God gave us, abiding by the rules, 
Even if you had the you don't have the ability to follow all the rules. You just can't. You have a problem that was bigger than yourself. You couldn't work your way into heaven. You couldn't be good enough to get into heaven. You couldn't be good enough to, to have peace within yourself. Why? Because we're so deluded with the stuff of the world. But there was only one way that we could be saved from these things. And it required Jesus coming in our midst, being, becoming one of us to say, I am with you. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says, but because of his great love for us, God who, in, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Jesus had to come to be with us, to be a sacrifice so that he could save us because there was no other way to do it. No other way to do it. God with us. Jesus has a lot of names. A lot of names. You know, what's, the, what's the, even the deal with that? He is, we call him Emmanuel. We call him Wonderful. We call him Counselor. We call him Prince of Peace. We call him Jesus. A lot of these names are attributes. They're not his name name. I've got those. I'm called major, I'm called officer, I'm called pastor, I'm called doctor. Those are just things about me. But Greg is who I am. Jesus is his name. Jesus is who he is. And what does Jesus mean? God saves. He is the savior of his people. In order to be the savior of his people, he had to be with them. He had to come and to do the thing that you and I couldn't do. We could not bridge the gap between God and us. We could not... We could not be forgiven of our sins because we are not holy and righteous without him. He had to come and be with us and to do the impossible, to save the unsavable, and to love the unlovable. That is what Jesus did while coming here and being God with us. It's not a small name. Not a small name. Because it stopped being, again, the history of the Hebrew people. And it became the reality of who you are in your ultimate destination. It became the, the reality of just not that God has done the impossible for the Hebrew people. By him coming in the flesh, he has shown you that I have done the impossible with you. Again, no longer history. But a change in direction. God with us. We have a lot to we have a lot to celebrate during the, the Christmas season. And believe it or not, it's not lights, it's not presents, it's not Santa Claus, it's not Rudolph or Clarice. That's his girlfriend if you're not in the Rudolph. Actually, I think they got married. Got married and reindeer getting married. <laughs> It's not about any of these things that we like to focus on and to celebrate, but one of the things that is so important that we have to celebrate is this child. This incarnation. 
this Messiah, the promised one, the Savior. We have to celebrate that he chose to step out of the heavens and to take up the mantle of his kingship and to put put the weight of the government upon his own shoulders to engage with you in a very personal way. And not just to save the many, but to save the one. This the story of the of him leaving the ninety-nine to leave the one, that's a real thing. He would do that. He has done that. We had to celebrate that even knowing that you were the one, he came for you to love you, to protect you, and to save you, because he could not imagine heaven without you. Let us pray.